Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings, Books and Music. In today's episode, Om Dungel and James Button in conversation with Ali Varenti to celebrate the publication of Om's memoir, Bhutan to Blacktown. This book tells Om Dungel's remarkable story, his journey from a remote village to a senior position in the Bhutanese civil service, to life as a human rights activist in Nepal, and eventually to his work as a community leader in Blacktown, Western Sydney. Every step prepared Om for the central role he would play in settling more than 5,000 Bhutanese refugees in one of the most successful refugee initiatives in Australia's history. Written with Walkley Award-winning journalist James Button, Bhutan to Blacktown is a story of grit and struggle, humour and irrepressible optimism, and how losing nearly everything shaped one man's character and fate. Here's Ali Varenti, writer and broadcaster, to introduce Om and James. First of all, I'd like to welcome everyone again to tonight's launch of Bhutan to Blacktown, Losing Everything and Finding Australia by Om Dungal with James Button, both of whom we are all delighted to say are with us tonight. James is a former journalist and Europe correspondent for The Age, Sydney Morning Herald. He's the author of Speechless, A Year in My Father's Business and Comeback, The Fall and Rise of Geelong and has won three Walkley Awards and a Melbourne Press Club quill for feature writing. He's a freelance writer and editor and friend. James has co-authored this book and I'd like to talk a little later about that um, process, the joys and challenges of such a collaboration. So welcome, James. Om was born in a small Bhutan village in 1961 where there were no motor cars and where he says we had to go to the stream about 10 or 15 minutes away to collect water and carry it home in containers on our backs. Where his family in Bhutan and thousands of others, other ethnic Nepalese of southern Bhutan, lived peacefully for generations until the late 1980s when the government, and I'll say in the king, you can correct me if I'm wrong there, waged a brutal ethnic cleansing campaign against its citizens of Nepali ancestry. And these included... Om and his family and friends and eventually 5,000 refugees who eventually settled in Australia. And Om played a critical and foundational role in this settlement. And very successful for the most part and unique it was too. And we'll talk more about its uniqueness and Om's particular approach and philosophy around the settlement of refugees. So we all have a story, as they say, as they keep on telling us, but some, like Om's, are just a little more remarkable than others. I thought that given it's his story and, and it's Om's voice, we'll let him speak. And I'd just um, like you, Om, to please read the opening of the book, Introducing Your Story. Thank you. I just want to say a big thank you for everyone to being here because uh, it's such a great honour and opportunity for me to be talking to you all. Thank you, Mum. James' mum is here as well. <laughs> and each of you for taking the time in this cold evening to come and listen to us. I also have some friends, my Buddhist friends as well, and Persu, who is well known everywhere in Melbourne, is <laughs> very much here. And my friends from D. Michelle and everyone have come as well. So thank, thank you, each of you, for being here today. Well, as told, I'll start. Yes, please. One morning in April 1992, I got into our car, left my wife and daughter, 
and fled my beloved Bhutan. I became a refugee. I was not the most oppressed. Others had it much worse than me. Yet I was forced to make agonizing decisions. Who would abandon his wife and a child? I lived in a state of confusion, guilt, and self-doubt, having to feel my way along a dark path towards a life I believed should be possible, but had no map to find. I lost my possessions, my salary, my status, my career, my country. And in that fall, I gained everything. If people knew one thing about Bhutan, they know it as the land of cross-national happiness. In 1998, the government announced at a United Nations forum that it was adopting cross-national happiness as the indicator of national well-being ahead of gross domestic product, which the king said was far too narrow and money-minded a measure to capture the true meaning of human life. For more than two decades, this concept has helped to spawn a global happiness industry and warm the hearts of many Westerners who look at Bhutan and naively imagine a Buddhist Sangrila, fighting bravely to preserve its spiritual values against the gross materialism of the West. Alas, these people are, have not looked hard enough. Um, just by way of introduction to our conversation, I thought that was a, a nice way to start, and I'd just like to pick up a couple of images in that beginning there, which particularly the image of falling. You have a line there about a fall, which you're using figuratively, of course, but it seems to kind of, for me, it echoes, doesn't it, a fall you had much later when you arrived in Sydney and that fall that you had. Uh, you're taking me to a difficult journey now. <laughs> Straight in there. Well, I just think it was a lovely kind of um, echo of that, that, that image that you gave us a moment ago. Yeah. When I became a refugee, spent six years in Nepal, you know, living as a refugee in Nepal, volunteering to help set up refugee camps, schools and hospitals, and to support children to go to school, etc. And then after six years of volunteering, I was a little crazy. I thought I wanted to do an MBA and made it happen, came to Sydney and I was studying. But I had to again leave behind my wife and my daughter. And that pain of living away from your family is very, very hard, especially when you're struggling to pay your tuition fees and, you know, you don't have enough as to earn $220 a week. And, you know, every time like you make enough, you go and pay your tuition fees and, you know, it was very difficult. And to have your eight-year-old daughter away from you and every time she had some school events and activities, she'll say, where is Papa? Papa, why, why don't you come? You know, so it was very painful to hear her. And again, that too, we couldn't talk like we do today. So it was one of those really, really difficult time. And my wife was trying to come to Australia. Every now and then she would get a visa rejected. And that was one of those moments where, you know, her visa was rejected and I didn't know what to do now. What did I do, you know, by coming to this country? Like, you know, I wanted to do my studies, but I'm away from my, you know, little girl. I'm away from my wife. My parents are in the refugee camp, you know, struggling. And I was questioning myself, did I do the right thing by coming to this country? And uh, I couldn't sleep one night. I couldn't sleep two nights. I couldn't sleep three nights. 
And after the fourth night, I still had to go to work. And I went to, you know, UTS. I was starting at UTS. I went to the library to do some assignments in the morning. And then uh, after the library work, I had to go to Coles. I used to work at Coles Market at the checkout. And I was going to the, you know, going to my work. And when I was crossing, you know, George Street and crossing up Liverpool Street and George Street, sort of my vision started blurring and uh, I just fell. And the next moment I knew, like somebody had dragged me across and, you know, somebody uh, saved my life that day. So it was one of that moment where like, you know, you are totally overwhelmed and you just didn't know how to deal with it. So I just collapsed on the street in Sydney, but somebody did save my life. Hmm. I just wanted to hear that story or I wanted people to hear that story early because there were moments, obviously, in this remarkable journey of yours where your resilience and your extraordinary, um, this, this engine that you have in you, this drive to, to give service and to do what needs to be done and to move forward and to... That seemed to, at that moment, it left you. At that yeah. moment, something else took over. Yeah, that, that moment sort of taught me that, like, next few days, I spent a lot of time reflecting on what happened. And if I had died, I was thinking, would my daughter be proud to say that, oh, my father couldn't deal with this and he's gone? Or would my parents, like they had so much hope on, my, on me, you know, my son went to Australia and died in a, you know, a street crossing or whatever. So I don't think anybody would have been proud. So I started thinking that, what was I worrying about? You know, there were a lot of things I was worrying about that I had no control of. And I was simply worrying about things I had no control, and it was impacting on things I had control on, and I wasn't focusing on it. So it was impacting my studies. So I said, okay, I need to refocus on my studies. And if I perhaps earn $10 extra, I can make a phone call to my daughter, rather than worrying. So that was where I really started you know, reshaping my own life and taking control of my life, focusing on things I had control of and not worrying too much about things I had no control of. I mean, it brings up for me, you know, it, it resonates around Buddhist, Hindu uh, philosophy and I, and I can only suppose that some of the way that you are and that sort of thinking originated somehow during your upbringing and spending your early time, you know, in a Buddhist country. Because yeah. that just sounds like Buddhist, Buddhism 101 to me. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, we'll talk about religion later, yeah, I think, because yeah. I, I, I think that's particularly interesting as a strain throughout this book Thank and your you. feelings around it. Yeah. Uh, James, I want to ask you first up, when you first heard Om's story, what what were your questions? What, 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 what did you feel and what did you want to know? Um, thanks, Hel. And hi, everybody. Great to see you all. Perhaps I'll give you a bit of context to how Om and I met. And I was in Blacktown researching a, a long paper for the Scanlon Foundation. The Scanlon Foundation does a lot of work on uh, immigration and, and multiculturalism. And really what Scanlon tries to do is to is to both promote Australian multiculturalism and examine how it's going. There's a, every year it does a series of surveys about how attitudes are in this country and how they're changing. And we also write these long narratives, which are like very long pieces of journalism. And we decided to look at Blacktown in Western Sydney. 
Blacktown has people from 188 different countries. About half the population is born overseas. Um, there are more South Sudanese people in Blacktown than anywhere else in Australia. I, I think as many, if not more, Pacific Islanders than anywhere else in Australia. There's also, separate to the immigration issue, there's, it's the largest urban indigenous population in Australia. It's an incredibly diverse place. And so we went to Blacktown to, to look at one place and see how is this place doing, you know? How is it coming together? And four, four million people have come to Australia in the last 25 years. About one in six people walking around in this country has come here in the last 25 years. That is a massive change. And it's mainly happening not in the inner city where it used to happen in Australia when the waves of Greek and Italian migrants came to Australia. The working class areas were in the inner city and that's where the migrants mostly came to. But now, of course, all those inner cities are gentrified. People like us live in them. And, and people who have come here recently, they can't afford to live in those areas. So they've moved to the fringe. So the, where all the, the, the population growth in our cities is happening is in the fringe. So we wanted to look at Blacktown. And I was recommended to OM by someone who had worked with OM. And he was my first interview in this project that I did. And I think we pretty much hit it off from day one, didn't yeah. we, Om? And it, it, it wasn't long before I saw that he had a, an incredible story. Uh, he had a number of stories. There was the story of his life growing up in Bhutan. There was the story of his life as a refugee, about which he spoke very, very eloquently early on. There was, and then there was the story of what Om had... And I'm, you'll come to this, El, about what Om had done to settle and integrate a, a large community of Bhutanese refugees who began coming to Australia about seven or eight years after you came to Australia. Uh, nine, ten years actually. Yeah, ten years. After you came to Australia, when he was already settled and was able to provide this crucial assistance. That's, that's where we started. Yeah. And at Fairwater, right near his house in, <laughs> in this beautiful part of Blacktown. Uh, I don't know if many of you have been to Blacktown, but it's an extraordinary part of Australia. You really, it's worth going to have a look at. This is a genuine offer. If you're coming to Blacktown, you get a free coffee at 2 by 4 Cafe. So please, okay. that's an standing offer. So you run a coffee as well as all those other things that you do? It's, it's not my cafe. You never sleep, It's do not you? my cafe. Oh, okay. <laughs> I pay I for I'd it. I thought I'd missed that in the biography. <laughs> uh, James, thank you. Um, just picking up on that, you know, you talk about Blacktown. It sounds like a, an, an extraordinarily unique environment. It's multiculturalism, you know, on, on acid, isn't it? I mean, it's really like just kind of a high flame example. And I'm just wondering how, how typical that might be at all. I mean, is, it, is, is our multiculturalism a word and a concept that has undergone so much change and has been so contested, particularly in recent years, and has been so kind of weaponized almost? Are we, how are we tracking, you reckon, when you saw that environment and you met Om and you spent some time there, how do you, what did it make you think about the greater project of multiculturalism here? Uh, look, I, I think we're tracking pretty well, actually. I, I, I think that no one who hasn't been a migrant can know how difficult that is, and I, I haven't been a migrant. So, but I also think in a place like Blacktown, and I'm going to get Om to speak about this in a minute because I think his experience is really important, you see this progression where people come, it is easier to, to buy a house there than it is in other parts of Sydney. And you see this fascinating movement where people start forming their own organisations, communities start forming their own organisations. And over time, those organisations start to reach out to other 
groups and say, how can we do things together, you know? And Blacktown has lots of problems. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But I don't think those problems are about migration. I think those problems are about disadvantage, poverty, distance from the city, unemployment. You know, it's, it's, it, it's a tough environment, for, especially for younger people, I think. Although, a, again, it's changing dramatically. If you go back to 1970, there were 100,000 people in Blacktown and 500 of them had tertiary degrees. Mm. Today, it's 16% of the whole population. Yeah. You know, massive change. Yeah. So, um, on, can you respond to that question? Because obviously, you, you, you still live there. Yeah. What, what are your impressions? What were your impressions early on? And how have they perhaps changed considering the amount of contact and work you have done within this community? Mm. Perhaps my experience is different because I tend to approach mm. things a little differently. I know. Uh, <laughs> That's I, what's so great about the book. <laughs> <laughs> I take an experiential approach. Um, you know, what I experience is real. Uh, what somebody else researches or tells me is, isn't real yet. So when I was, you know, looking for a place to live, we were sort of close to the city, you know, we were renting a house. But when we started, you know, thinking of buying a house, then I started doing some research. And I thought, you know, when I was young, I really wanted to work for the United Nations because I wanted to travel and know the world and, you know, learn about people, different cultures, different people. And Australia had that opportunity. Like, I looked at different places in Sydney itself, like Liverpool, Blacktown, had people from all over the world. So I thought, wow, this is fantastic. It's like working for the United Nations. So, you know, I narrowed down to Blacktown because it was the most diverse. And when I sort of moved to Blacktown, a lot of my friends at Telstra sort of worried, oh, are you okay? <laughs> I said, what do you mean? Like are you safe? Is it okay? And I asked them, you know, like, how do they know about Blacktown? And they've heard about it. They've never been. And one of my friends actually had passed by. They missed the way, so they passed by Blacktown, oh, okay. and they were so worried. So he said, like, you know, that he was the only one who had passed by Blacktown, and none of the others had. And I thought, okay, let me do some experiment myself. And we used to visit, you know, before we bought the property, like, we visited Blacktown at different times, different days, and spoke to so many different people. And I spoke to a women, you know, elderly women working in a garden. How do you find it? Oh, it's fantastic. You know, they, we love our neighbors. I spoke to so many people, and they all loved it. So I thought, people look for a livable city. I was looking for a lovable city. And I found that lovable city there, and that's how I moved in. And yes, I think everywhere, there are problems. If you start looking for problems, it can be too overwhelming. Sometimes we'd have to, because as a refugee, you know, if we had looked for problems in a refugee camp, you'd be dead by now. Mm. Nothing is working. You have lost your job. You have lost. Some people have lost their families. You know, we've lost everything. If you look at it that way, so you have to really look at what's working, what do we have, and then build from that. Yes, and, and that, that, um, that attitude, that philosophy, that, that approach drives the book and it's really very much a part of the texture of the, your voice in that book. And it's something that struck me over and over again because I just wish I had even an iota of that kind of mindset, quite frankly, because your, your way of dealing with adversity, etc., is is remarkable. And you've brought that to that community. So tell us a little bit about how you 
not taught, because I think that's the wrong word and I don't think that's a word you'd want to use, but you are, I think, if you don't mind me saying, a natural leader. And even those little stories that you tell when you're a child of how you you had an idea, a vision, you had an aim. It was always about giving service. It was always about, the impulse seemed to be always about giving back, giving to. It was never about your advancement or anything like that. There was never an individualistic kind of impulse. And that's carried you, that carried you here. And then all of those skills, including all the degrees and the engineering experience and the remarkable life that you'd already had, you brought it to Blacktown. And somehow that, what you had in you, you gave out. How did you do that? Like, what were you... I mean, you must have come up with some strategies, approach, or did you just wing it? What did you do in the first days, in the first weeks? Firstly, I think what I experience is you don't want to die many times. When you become a refugee, like, you know, you've already almost... You are dead once because you have lost everything and, you know, like... And you don't want to die again by suffering internally. Like you have that external pain, which you cannot control. Somebody else inflicted that external pain. But whatever, everything else is internally generated, I found. You know, like we became refugees. Now, if you start blaming the king and this, whatever happens, we were wrong, etc. every day, like I would be dead by now because, you know, all that brings pain and suffering within yourself. And I think it's scientifically proven that, you know, anger, hatred, etc., builds that, you know, chemicals and damages your body. So I think that was one of the philosophy where I believe that we need to help each other, not to die again and again. Rather, let's move forward. Let's acknowledge what has happened because you cannot do anything about it. You know, we became refugees. Now, how about many times we speak like we, we cannot undo that. But then what I've realized is we have the power to respond the way I want to. Nobody can dictate that, you know. Like if somebody comes and tells me anything, it's my right to respond the way I want to. And I found that if you respond with love and affection and care, you feel so much better. And when you said giving, I think, I think there's so much, you know, if you, even if you don't have anything, you can continue to give. When we lost everything, when we became refugees, we thought we lost everything. But very quickly we realized that we hadn't lost the capacity to love and care for each other. In a refugee camp, people, we survived because we looked after each other. So mm -hmm. we saw the power of giving. Yeah. You encouraged people to volunteer yeah. very early on, didn't you? Mm. And, and did they all respond well to that? Or did some people just think, what are you talking about? I, I've got myself to look after <laughs> here. I'm a wreck. I don't want to be volunteering. <laughs> I think that was the only way to look after ourselves. Yeah. Because when I was looking for a job and I was jobless, I was sort of getting depressed. And I thought, what do I do? I need to come out and do something. So I used to live in Marrickville. And uh, that's where we set up a, you know, Amnesty International Group. Uh, Marrickville Dalajil group and we started setting up stalls and selling merchandise and that was the reason actually we got the forward from the Prime Minister because he was our local MP so I used to drag him and Anthony we need to buy a t-shirt Anthony we need to change the policies on this so I sort of dragged him enough harassed him enough I think he remembered me after 15 years when James and I approached him to write a forward oh yes I do remember both of them so <laughs> So I think this is where I saw that, like, at you know, that time, if I didn't volunteer and if I kept to myself, mm -hmm. I wouldn't have got where I am today. So 
by being out there, it wasn't about giving to anybody. It mm. was looking after myself. Volunteering is actually looking after ourselves. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I know. I, I understand mm. that it's a, there's a mutual kind of benefit in that. Just picking up on a couple of things you said around your attitude early on and how you managed to kind of connect with people and, and, and look outwards rather than inwards and how it also helped you, rescued you from your introversion and possibly potential depression and perhaps inertia. I mean, a lot of refugees do, of course, that is uh, classically suffer that post-traumatic situation. Not everybody was well, were they? There were people who did not manage and couldn't, for whatever reason, they couldn't do it. But the majority did. In some, you know, to, some, to a lesser or greater extent, they did. And that's why it's such a successful kind of project all up, isn't it? Yeah. So I think it's about trying to uplift everyone. Mm. So not everyone can come to the same level, if you, there is the same level. But I found we need to accept that we all are different. We, we, there's no common sort of, we call breast practice, or what community success, etc. Success means it's so individual, like success means different things to different people. Om, you know, on paper, yeah. was a very successful. Yeah. He was unlike m most of the people that he was living with and his contemporaries in Bhutan. Yeah. You, were, you, were, you were very successful. Yeah. You were privileged. You became yeah. privileged. You became yeah. very good at working as an engineer and offering your services telecommunications. You helped set up the first... Is this right? You helped yeah. set up the first telecommunications kind of... For the first time in the history of Bhutan, we could pick up the phone and make a call outside. <laughs> and there's a nice <laughs> metaphor there that, you know, you set up communications and you are such a beautiful communicator yourself. But what, <laughs> what I'm trying to get at here is that you were, you know, in terms of what kind of index, the index that perhaps a lot of us would use, you were a successful person. What I wanted to say, though, to yeah. that was that... In a sense, you lost that. That was a raise that was taken from you. Your identity was kind of more than exploded as a result of the expulsion from the country. And you talk very beautifully in the book about identity. Can we talk a little bit about that now? Because the way you spoke about it as a, as a layering process, can you, can you explain that to, to us a little more, please, and how you use that? Yeah, identity seems to be a problematic thing for me because you know a lot of times we tend to carry our identity everywhere so if i'm the ceo of an organization i carry that identity at home i carry that identity with friends and you know like so i'm the ceo so you know like i don't get really close to anybody because i'm the ceo you go home and i'm the ceo so you don't have build that relationship with the kids because you know you are a ceo so a lot of people tend to have that identity and in Sometimes, you know, having that identity can be very dangerous, you know, empowered identity can be dangerous as well. So once people take that identity, like if I'm a religious leader, for example, of a Muslim leader or a Christian leader or Buddhist leader, I'll be all about protecting my people because I'm taking that identity at any cost. So if you empower people with a narrow identity, it can be very dangerous. And for us, I think it's really important for us to start thinking the way we call ourselves a multicultural community and how we empower people with that narrow identity. Because I think we need to first think ourselves as human beings first before we take that narrow identity. Because what our king did was exactly that. You know, he took the identity of the northern Bhutanese and he disowned the Southern Bhutanese. So he had to protect the Northern Bhutanese at any cost, so he evicted us. 
I'm sure Saddam Hussein tried to do the same thing. He took a narrow identity of protecting his people. He was, I'm sure, doing what he thought was right. So a lot of leaders take that narrow identity and then protect that identity at any cost, and that's why we have problems. So I think in a black town, we had that very, you know, we, we were very scared when people started during COVID, you know, people started asking for vaccines for their community. Then I said, who is your community? What about our next door neighbor, elderly person? Who looks after them, who, you know, like, who protects them? So all the community leaders were asking for vaccinations for their community. And if that happens during crisis, we'll be fighting with each other for that limited resources to provide to our community. So I think in Australia, I think we really need to rethink about, you know, uh, what sort of identity do we take? And, you know, what sort of community we want to build? So for Fairwater, we live in Fairwater in Blacktown. So one of the things we constantly remind ourselves is we are Fairwater residents first. And then on top of that, we bring our diversity. The richness that you know adds to our community is added on top, not starting with our narrow identities, because that could lead us to, you know, we could go parallelly and never meet together. Whereas if we come together as Blacktown residents, as Australians, then we've got this common platform to play with. There's a common denominator. And then on top of that, we add that 188 cultures or languages, and it adds to the richness, not the other way around. That largesse that you demonstrate is, of course, not as common. Yeah. <laughs> not that common and increasingly less common, I would suggest. Right. And there's a yeah. whole, you know, discussion around the rise of identity politics, if you like, and how that and that how that c collides with this kind of notion of identity. That's another discussion. But James, would you like to briefly respond to that around the, the notion of identity? Um, sure, I'll, and I'll, I'll just say something, if I can, first about you've talked about Om's philosophy, and I think what's really important to say about the work that Om did in Blacktown was that he applied that philosophy very concretely to the lives of the, of the people. So you developed a very specific strategy for people, many of whom were illiterate, even in their own language, Nepali language, let alone in English. You know, you've arrived in Australia, get out of the house, don't just sit at home, uh, but, but don't necessarily go straight for a job because actually going straight for a job can lock you into a very low-end job. Get some skills. But that resilience, Elle, that you were asking Om about, is, it was a concrete strategy as well as a sort of philosophy. And I think it's really important to... Yes. And, and then this brings me to the identity question because what Om just said about identity, again, he applied concretely in the time of COVID because... There was this problem where communities in Blacktown, often, especially the older people, didn't speak English. There was a, a health crisis and, and there were messages going out from the government such as, only be with your family, right? Now, in Blacktown, a family can be 85 people, right? And, 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 and so the messages had to be, by family, that means household, you know, not, so you can't go and see all your seven aunties and, yeah. you know, and cousins and, you know, and, and also, you know, this is people coming from uh, places of violence and uh, you know, where, where, you know, the army came into Blacktown. So for people who come from other countries, that the, the arrival of the army could be, again, another message that had to go out was, this doesn't mean that we're about to have a coup, you know, mm. and, and, what Om did and other people with him, not, not Om alone, was to form this virtual door knock where people actually, like a telephone tree, you know, I tell Om, 
the messages. He tells 10 people, they tell 10 people. Mm. You know, and it started first as a Bhutanese initiative, but then it spread to African communities, yeah. didn't it? And there was a separate South Sudanese... And everybody was doing this for nothing. Mm. You know, they were doing it on the weekends. And, you know, people, you know, it was, I think it was saving lives, you know. And there are very high vaccination rates in the eastern suburbs of Sydney. And then you had Blacktown. You know, you had these very wealthy areas of Sydney, high, highly vaccinated. And Blacktown at the end of that came in as number five. Oh, so they no, got... We were number one for us. To me, that was an example of Om's philosophy around not as a, as a religious community or an ethnic community, but as a, a community of people who live in the same streets and, and share the same streets. I think just on that, it's yes. very important to sort of mention this because people are complaining that, you know, government was not doing enough. There was no communication, proper communication. It wasn't clear in the language they understood, etc. Now, start printing pay, papers in 182 languages, it's... It's daunting and it's costly. So what's the role of community leaders? So we said, okay, you know, like first two sessions, we listened to people, compl all the complaints. Then we said, okay, what can we do? So we had a hashtag, what can we do? So before we complain, this is what I need to do. Call 10 people in your community in the language people understood through person that they trusted. So it's a community leader from the South Sudanese community, community leader from the Afghan community, community leader from the Nepalese community. So it was conveyed through people that, you know, in the language people understood, through someone they trusted, and it went right deeper and deeper into community And, and as J James said, it, it was a concrete, well-thought-out, systematic approach. And perhaps that has something also, I, I don't want to, you know, sort of over, overly determine this, but, you know, your training as an engineer was very helpful, you know, because it, it, within that you had a, an attention to detail and an, and an approach to organisation that was very, very, I imagine, incredibly helpful at that, at that time particularly. And we were very fortunate to work with a service provider called Sidwest Multicultural Services. They took the lead and they coordinated that so that they could bring the leaders together. So it was a very collaborative approach of a service provider. How It is an example of how a service providers can work with the community organization. So there were people from over 20, 30 different communities, community leaders, and then Sidwes had the resources to coordinate that, so we worked together very, very collaboratively, mm. so, yeah. Look, we don't have a lot of time left. There's so much to discuss. I just do want to return just to the book and the guts of the book, if you, if you don't mind. I learned an enormous amount. I mean, I, I am someone who, like probably all of us, does read a lot, and a lot of it's for work, but this was a pleasure to read, but also I, I did learn so much and it almost made me feel a little bit ashamed that I'd known so little about what happened in Bhutan and what happened to you and and your, you know, and your people, if you'll pardon the expression. So it, it's a book that you learn from, but it is also just so clearly written, so so beautifully written, so so simple and yet belies the complexity, the incredible complexity of your life, your your journey and the journey of all these people that you speak of. And so just that brings up, James, how did you do this together? You you, you know, you have written this with Om. How does that work? I think I'll make it very simple. I had a story which uh, I wasn't sure whether I'll get a publisher to publish it in the first place. And I'm not a writer. So 10 years ago, I left Elstra and sort of started sort of keeping a notebook beside my bedside table. And I used to 
some thoughts will come around midnight and I'll put on the light and scribble, but I was disturbing my wife. Then I started something different. I would just scribble and then next morning I wouldn't sometimes know what I've written. So I had done this about 10 years ago and the manuscript was ready, but that's when we met James and then I thought, wow, like, you know, I have this story, but I don't know how many people will turn the page or whether it will be published in the first place. Now, James, I know, is a writer. And how good would that be if my story combined with a writer? And that's how it has happened. And I think I was disciplined a lot by the publishers and James as well. And I used to push things quite hard and James will always remind me that Om, remember that, you know, reader is the king. Reader is the king. How did so, that resonate for you, given your history with James? Yeah, yes, he would keep telling me. <laughs> and then we had to drop names, you know. I would write ten names, you know. So I worked with so-and-so, X, Y, Z. No one cares about that. Yeah. yeah no one cares about no that. No one cares. I didn't know that, but I had to. Because, you know, like, I had to put my friend's name or so-and-so. Yeah. So I had, you know, helped four kids to get become doctors. So I had to put all four. And then they would keep publishers said, you know, blame the publisher, don't worry. And then around 1.30, midnight afterwards, I think James sends me this, you know, like, Om, remember that Rita is the king. Rita is also the queen in bowl. <laughs> then I thought, I can't push him anymore, so I dropped the names. <laughs> in bold, James, I've never seen anything in bold from you. Well, El, I, I, I want to say also the book has an argument about how we could do better in the way that we yes. settle refugees yeah. and, 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 and migrants as well in Australia. And I was really drawn to Om's story, but I was also drawn to the argument that Om makes in the book about ways in which... Australia could do a better job. You know, we've got a formal refugee program and a, a lot of the people who come as refugees need crucial support at the start, but I think they also need to be empowered and for them to be able to control their, their destiny, there is a tendency in the, in, in the government funding models mm -hmm. and, and also in the kind of larger sort of attitudes towards refugees to see refugees as victims because of what they've experienced before they came here. And what Om showed me was that, yes, people have experienced shocking things, but when they get to a country like Australia, they are really ready to go often, you know. Of course, there are people who have suffered trauma, but even Om, your Hem Lal, you know, the, the, a man who'd suffered extreme torture and everything, when he got his chance to cook and then he did a TAFE course and he could start volunteering and helping people, you know, he really got his life together, you know. To ask, answer your question, yeah. El, that, yeah. that attracted... I thought that's a really powerful argument that he's yes. making yeah. and I wanted to help sort of midwife that argument, if yeah, you like, cause yeah. it, which I think is... And, and so that, that was, you know, mm. a, a real attraction for me and uh, uh, working with them. Were there moments for you, I, I can only imagine as a co-author, were there moments where you felt there was too much of you going inside those sentences or were you I good at resisting that? We sort of worked together very... Mm. We spoke many times over Zoom and, mm. and, and I would ask Gom to write sections mm. and he, he had a manuscript earlier. So... I feel very much that it's his story and yeah. his voice, you know, and every sentence we went over very carefully. Didn't yeah, you know? and James would always say, are you comfortable with this home? So I think that really helped, I think. Look, I'd like to end with another reading, if that's okay. It's a vignette of some of the work that Om and his fellow workers in that space were doing at the time. 
And it's, it's on page 169 yeah. and it starts the early period. Yeah. Just to complete what James was talking about, Hemlal, was like the approach we have taken is not to ask people what they need, but to ask people, what are you passionate about? What do you love to do? And having done this for a long time, we've also found that there is a theory behind it. We call it a strength-based approach, but there's a theory behind it. And we've got some practitioners here, Michelle and Deke and vouch for it. So they, they have been practicing this for years and years. So yes, it's about looking at people's passion and strengths rather than what people need. That early period of settlement was a very happy time. Old friends were reunited. People had not fully turned their minds to what might lie ahead. We urged people to relax, enjoy life after the camps. I knew many of the elderly were anxious about Australia. Refugee camps are nest of rumors. They won't let us be Hindus there. They'll force us to eat beef. They'll put us in the desert and we'll be bitten by snakes and spiders. Uh, we have this in bracket. Hostless <laughs> detention of people seeking asylum in remote centers at that time, no doubt, provoked this rumor. To allay these fears, one morning in April, in early 2009, we organized nearly the whole community, 108 people, to take a train to Wollongong. Commuters would have seen two noisy, colorful compartments full of people carrying picnic baskets, older women in saris, men in traditional Nepali dress, known as Daura Sural, and topis, Nepali caps. As the train raced through the beautiful green bush south of Sydney, people looked out the window and shouted, Oh, this is like Bhutan. We visited the Nanten Temple, one of the biggest Buddhist temples in the southern atmosphere. Then we had a picnic. I ate far too much dakani, a delicious heavy rice pudding. It would have been rude to refuse. That day, I could see the influence of the camps on our people. No one ever wants to be a refugee, to grow up or grow old, unable to set their life path, knowing no one home than at tiny hut. But life in the camps in Nepal wasn't all bad. People lived in as families, often three generations under one roof. Most migrants to Australia are people of working age or students who cannot bring their parents or grandparents as permanent settlers. But under the refugee program, the Bhutanese mostly came to Australia as intact families. This difference would profoundly shape our community. On the train to Longong, I watched young people help elders find seats, carry food. The confined spaces of camp life had taught them to care for not only their grandparents, but for their neighbours too. The subtitle of this book is Losing Everything and Finding Australia. And um, your loss is Australia's gain. It's a beautifully clear-sighted, unsentimental, at times very painful, also very funny account of one man's life but finally about all of us. It's a life that from a very early age, as I said earlier, I think is, was driven to find meaning and purpose outside of yourself through interconnectedness rather than through this notion of independence that so many of us in the West have been fed that it's so important that we're independent, we're independent. But what's wrong with a bit of codependence? What's wrong with a bit of interconnectedness and interdependence? And you make such a beautiful argument for that in this book. So I thank you for that. And I just want to thank you all for joining us tonight. There was a moment, just as a, a coda, at one moment you're in your room with your wife 
You say that the greatest gratitude that you feel is to your wife, Saroja, and that to repay her in some small way, you bring her a tea every morning in bed. And then on the wall of your bedroom is a framed poster and it says 10 rules for a happy marriage. So I'd like to know what they are, but perhaps we'll talk about that after. When you talk about my son, we'll talk about that as well. Thanks. Thank you everybody for coming tonight. And there are, there are signed, signed, special signed copies of this book that we'd love you to buy because it, it is a beautiful read. And I think also a really important document and James was witness to this story. He was witness as well as co-author and it's something that's important for all of us to read, I think. Thank you. From Bhutan to Blacktown is available via all reading stores and from our website where you can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast. You'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you.